As you probably already know, we started at the beginning of October this series on our core values at JCC. The idea being, what is it that we, we, we care most deeply about that would anchor us, that would identify us as a group of people? And from that place, then, we might know how to, to be in mission together as, as a group of people who say, this is what defines us. At the beginning of the month, we shared about the first core value of belonging. We said we value being part of a family at JCC. Not a family we define, not a family we create, but a family that God has called together and created to belong to him. And we get to share in that belonging. And then last week, we started into our second core value at JCC, and that's the value of following. See if I can make this jump forward. And we, we said this, this is sort of our short summary of what it means to value following. We value following Jesus as a disciple-making family. There's a nod back to that first value of belonging. Following Jesus as a disciple-making family who trusts him to save us from sin, obeys his teachings, and imitates his example in prayer, service, and love. We just heard about imitation. We are eager then to read, understand, and practice God's word together. Last week, we started into our study of this value by looking at uh, Jesus' parable in Matthew 7 about wise and foolish builders. And, and Ben and I shared about what it means to value not just hearing the words of Jesus, but putting them into practice. Discipleship is, is a habit that requires behaviors and, and commitments and follow-through. We also believe that in order to follow Jesus, we have to learn some things. And in particular, we have to learn how to be led. Okay? Following is, is a behavior we, we learn over time and we develop. In one of uh, his many books about discipleship, author and church planter Mike Breen tells the story of a real-life horse trainer named Monty Roberts. And I think this guy's still alive. You could look him up on YouTube. He has actually some pretty impressive videos if you're a horse person. But way back, I think in the 1940s or 50s, when Roberts was a young man, he witnessed what he felt was often violent or abusive horse training, ways to quote-unquote break a horse by using intimidation and force. And so kind of troubled by this, but also longing to know how to, to train horses, Robert set out to study how horses actually learn to follow each other in the wild. How does a horse learn to follow a leader in, in its own context? And he, he discovered by observing that uh, there's this process that happens in, in herds of wild horses. When a young stallion who's been out on his own for a period of time finds a, a herd that they want to join up with, a larger herd of wild horses. And Roberts found that there were nearly always two elements present when that stallion wanted to join the herd. He would begin to approach the herd, and, and in particular, he would have to approach the lead mare. 
There's always a mare that has leadership over the herd. And when the young stallion would first begin to approach the mare, the mare would turn her body toward the stallion in a posture of challenge. She would make direct eye contact with the stallion. Her ears would go back, and, and she would look directly at him. And the stallion, in, in nearly every instance, would gradually begin to slow down and eventually bring himself to a stop. And he would bow his head, and he would sometimes begin to paw at the dirt. And this was the way for the young stallion to acknowledge the mare's leadership, the, the mare's authority over the herd. But as soon as that acknowledgement, that recognition of her leadership was, was made, the posture, the body language would immediately shift. And it would shift into a posture of invitation, Roberts found. The mare would actually turn her, her gaze away from the stallion. She'd begin to move in the other direction, and she would actually expose her flank. She would make herself vulnerable to that stallion, but also giving the invitation to come in closer, that it was safe to approach. Her ears would go up, and, and the stallion would slowly begin to come in closer, shorten that distance between them. And Roberts found that for the next several minutes, the next several encounters, they would go back and forth. They would alternate between these two postures. The mare would challenge the stallion, and then, and then the, the stallion would acknowledge that challenge. She would yield. The, the stallion would come in closer. And then they would, they would go back and forth until finally the two would come in close enough proximity that they would actually make physical contact. They would touch. And that's what Roberts called joining up. It was a, a moment in time where the stallion now understood both the authority of the mare leading him, but also the intimacy, the, the desire to be close to her. And from that point on, that stallion would follow not only the mare, but the entire herd wherever they went. Of course, Mike Breen uses this in his book about discipleship because he says that in, in many ways is a picture of what's happening in discipleship. Jesus invites his disciples in close enough to love them, to care for them. But he also asks them to accept the challenge of discipleship, the responsibilities of discipleship, yielding to his authority to lead us. Right? And so when we follow Jesus together, there's this pattern of challenge and invitation and challenge and invitation until over the course of time, we imitate Jesus more and more completely. This morning, I want to open up Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And I want to look at the beginning of chapter 2 there. And I think I hear in, in Paul's words both an, an expression of invitation, but also one of challenge as he urges these followers to continue learning how to follow Jesus. Let me pray for us as we open God's word together. Lord, it's, it's wonderful, it's encouraging to come together as a body on Sunday morning and to acknowledge your lordship, to bow before you in worship. 
as Christian said, to, to make you greater or to perceive your greatness more fully in our eyes. Lord, would you join up our hearts? Would you join up our desires, join up our actions and behaviors so that we might follow you in everything we do? Pray now that as we hear your words, may the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations of our hearts as we listen, may they be pleasing in their response to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. Let me encourage you, if you have your your notebooks, to consider copying out either the whole passage or or particular verses as we go that you want to carry with you this week. The church that that Paul planted in Philippi was probably one of those churches closest to his own heart, and one that had labored with him through both seasons of, of mission and challenge, as well as inviting others into the gospel. And this letter comes to them probably about a decade into their process of discipleship. They've been following Jesus for roughly 10 years when Paul writes them here. But at the start of chapter 2, Paul is urging them to keep on following, to go in closer, to come in deeper to that relationship of discipleship. Pick up in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore... Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, think of coming in close. If you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul knows that intuitively, most of us make decisions through a kind of cost-benefit analysis. Right? Often when we think about what we're going to do, we naturally ask the question, well, what do I get out of this and what do I have to give as part of this? One of the things that, that strikes me more and more these days is the, the bombardment of opportunities to join rewards programs. Right? We sort of get overwhelmed by this, by the airlines, or by the grocery stores, or by gas stations, or by credit cards. And they, they want you to be part of what they're doing. They invite you in, and they invite you in to be part of this program, or this membership, or this club, by explaining to you what the benefits are going to be. Right? For example, we have a, a rewards account with a, a hotel chain. And because we we earn points along the way, we get upgrades to to nicer rooms, or we earn free nights, or they give you free dessert in the lobby sometimes of the hotel. 
And the hope being that as you experience those benefits, that will establish in you a sense of, of loyalty. So that when it comes to choose where to stay next time, you'll choose to stay with them. Now, gratefully, there are no sort of gimmicky point programs in, in the, the, the invitation to follow Jesus. Right? We're, we're not into selling indulgences to people. Hopefully, we know that following Jesus isn't about putting you know, stars on the sticker chart. But in verse 1, Paul wants to remind us that we've been given an invitation to belong to Jesus. And as part of that invitation, there are benefits conferred upon us. Verse 1, he talks about the encouragement of being united with Christ. Paul talks about enjoying the comforts of his love for us. He reminds us of the connection that that forges between us, between us and fellow believers who share the same spirit. Paul reminds us of the benefits of Christ's mercies to us when we struggle. He reminds us of Christ's great compassion for us when we suffer. In short, in verse 1, he tells us to belong to Jesus is of great benefit to us. Think about how belonging to Jesus has shaped who you are. Maybe that's a, a journal prompt you want to take into this week. Gratefully writing out, what does it mean for me to be in Christ? How does that change who I am and what I experience on a day-to-day -day basis? The point being, Paul says, that when we come to recognize and appreciate and understand all of these encouragements and benefits, it should nudge us toward a particular kind of response. Recognizing the benefits of being in Christ should encourage us, should compel us to be followers of him, imitators of Jesus. There's an if-then dynamic expressed beginning in verse 1 and then coming out further in verses 2 through 5. Paul says, verse 1, if you count yourself among those who belong to Jesus, who are encouraged by the benefits of that membership in his body, verse 1, then verse 2 through 5, you have a challenge. You have something to do in response. Paul says, then imitate Jesus by practicing his ways with each other. Imitate Jesus by having his same love. Imitate Jesus by having his same posture and humility. Verse 5, imitate Jesus in your relationships with one another. Having the same mindset as Christ Jesus. If you haven't already written down that challenge in verse 5, let me repeat it for you here. Paul says, if you belong to Jesus, then in your relationships with each other. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What's the mindset of Jesus? What does that look like? Just before this 
chapter, at the end of chapter 1 in Philippians, verse 27, Paul tells us that disciples of Jesus have to learn to think differently, and they have to learn to think like they are citizens of heaven, Paul says. Paul says, you you now belong to Christ, you're united to him, and he lives in the heavenly realms. So you have to start thinking and acting like a citizen of, of heavenly places. And in order for us to know how a heavenly citizen behaves, what their rights and responsibilities and and actions look like, here in chapter 2, we get this incredible song about the the first citizen of heaven, beginning in verse 6. And it describes for us Jesus, the one who has come from heaven to show us what it means to imitate him. And he is a citizen that Paul says began in a high place and who goes way down into the depths of our humanity before finishing in an even more glorious position. Let me read for you verses 6, 7, and 8. This is the mindset of Jesus, Paul says. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality did not grasp at equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want you to to notice the direction of these three verses. Verse 6, Jesus begins in the very highest place. He's in, in the heavenly realms in equality with God. But Paul says Jesus chooses a downward trajectory. That's how Jesus follows and obeys his Father. He chooses this downward way. Verse 6, Jesus did not consider status with God, equality with God, something for his own advantage, but rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself to choose a place akin to a servant or, or a slave is what the word means in Greek. Verse 8, having taken on human flesh, having descended into our humanity, having taken on flesh, Jesus then submits himself even further. He submits himself to the curse of sin and death on our behalf. And not just any kind of death, but a humiliating death of crucifixion. If we want to know how a heavenly citizen thinks Paul says you've got to measure the distance traveled in these three verses. You need to know that to think like a heavenly citizen is to follow Jesus in this downward way. To let the example of Jesus shape our minds and our desires and our choices and our patterns in relationships. What does it look like to be followers of Jesus? 
There is a, a village in the southern part of France known as Les Chambons. And it has, since the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, largely been home to a community of French Huguenots, French Protestants. And you know, France being a predominantly Catholic region, these, these Huguenots, because of their particular religious convictions, have experienced a long history of persecution and, and sort of being second-class citizens within France. And I think it's part of their, their history that has formed within, within them a particular mindset. The mindset that, though on, on paper, yes, they are citizens of the nation of France, they identify more deeply as citizens of heaven. So much so that during the, the Second World War, when the, the French government began to deport Jewish refugees from, from France back into Nazi custody. Right, there, were, there were Jews fleeing from, from Austria and Germany and other parts of, of Europe, coming to France for, for refuge and safety. But the French government, so as not to, to draw the ire of the Nazis, gave them back, gave them up. But in this particular place, in this tiny village of, of 3,000 people, they lived according to a different mindset. And the, the town pastor, who's pictured here, Andre Trachme, he urged the, the families in his congregation in that village to begin housing and hiding and feeding Jewish refugees. And the whole village, incredibly, right? You can't do that and, and keep a secret unless the whole village does it with you. The whole village complied at great personal risk to themselves. And it's estimated that during the, the four or five years of, at the height of World War II, they sheltered upwards of 5,000 Jews in their homes and kept them from concentration camps. Right? A village of 3,000 people was sheltering more people than, than they themselves had in their own homes. People of Les Chambons had a Jesus mindset. Right? They chose to be vulnerable rather than comfortable. They chose to live down rather than to live up because they were followers of Jesus. And as Pete, I think, encouraged the children, encouraged us already this morning, we, we need to actually think about how could we choose to follow Jesus in a downward way? What's a choice we could make, a concrete choice? Sometimes we need little practices to help us build into bigger practices. I have a, a friend who does this every time he goes into a public bathroom. He goes and he looks for scraps of paper on the floor. And he notices where they're at, he picks them up, he puts them in the garbage, washes his hands. And he does it because he knows it's a job nobody wants to do. Right? Somebody might have to do it because they're, they're paid to. But he does it because he wants to remind himself that following Jesus is, is a downward practice. We have to follow Jesus in, in moving ourselves and our own self-importance down. Maybe you choose to move down this week by listening to someone you find it easy to dismiss. Someone you find it easy to be impatient with. Making time just to concentrate. 
Maybe you can move down this week by giving away something you cherish and value. But thoughtfully and joyfully thinking about someone else that that special possession might bless. Right? Confess that, that week to week, sometimes we, we embrace this downward way, I embrace this downward way, and other times I miss that. Right? I'm guarded by my own temptation to, to preserve my position, my power, my status in a relationship, to get what I want. To imitate Jesus and his humility, right? it takes a prayerful focus. And we have to keep locating, as Paul did at the beginning of this chapter, ourselves in Christ Jesus. What's our identity? What benefits are conferred to us as followers of Jesus? So that we can freely give up our position to bless others. I want to finish briefly with these last three verses in in this section. And they indicate that, that, that ironically or paradoxically, as we move down, as we follow Jesus downward, we actually place ourselves in a position to be lifted up. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Verse 9 starts with, therefore. Therefore always is is an arrow back to the verses that just precede it. Paul's connecting what comes in 9 through 11 to what came in in the verses beforehand. Paul says, because the Son moved down, therefore the Father lifted him up. The directions are connected. If you look at the very end of verse 8, what position is Jesus in? He has he fully descended. He's gone as far down as down could go. He's stripped of his glory. He's stripped of life. He's crucified, dead, and buried at the end of verse 8. But now in verse 9, now it's the Father's turn to act for him. God sees the obedience of his Son. And he comes and he takes the humiliated, emptied body of Jesus and he begins to move up with him, starting in verse 9. And he restores, he fills back up the dignity of Jesus. He fills back up the honor of Jesus. He restores the power of Jesus and the glory of Jesus. And the Father places a crown on the head of his Son. He places a kingdom at the feet of this Son. Until finally, by verse 11, the downward serving Jesus becomes the lifted, the resurrected, the exalted Jesus. I think what Paul is is trying to help us imagine in these three verses is a fulfillment of the challenge he gave us in verses 2 through 4. 
Back in 2 through 4, he said, if you belong to Jesus, then look like him in your posture. Look like him in your speech. Look like Jesus in your humility. And now he says, what is the, what is the people who look like Jesus? What, what, do they, what do they look like collectively? Well, they look like a people whose knees are bowed, right? They look like a people whose tongues confess. Jesus is Lord above all things. Another way of saying that is if we accept, if we follow Jesus in the downward challenge of verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. If we go down with Jesus, we put ourselves in a privileged position to see Jesus as he truly is. Only those who are bowed down before Jesus perceive his true glory. A glory, Paul says, that one day all creation must acknowledge. Those who go down with Jesus, God the Father invites to go up with him also. Up into the ascension of Jesus. Up into the glory of Jesus. Up into the the resurrection life that Paul says works within us in the book of Ephesians. So much so that Paul will say in Ephesians 2, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Right At the heart of following Jesus, at the heart of discipleship is this paradox that when we go down with Jesus into servitude, down into humility, down into dependence, down into submission, it's in that place that God elevates us into those heavenly places. I want to leave you with a a worship course that I think captures this idea beautifully. It's from a song that came out a few years ago called We Rise. And the chorus simply says, we rise by bowing. We live by dying. When we give what we could never keep, we gain what we could never lose. I want to leave you with both the invitation and the challenge of those words. Give up your mindset. Give up your ambition. Give up your advantage. So that instead, with with hands empty, with knees bowed, with faces prostrate before the Lord in worship, you might be joined to Jesus. And you might be drawn up into the glorious kindness of our Father. You take a moment just to, to prayerfully receive those invitations today.